standards. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Hedberg and welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show. Today we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Isabella Wentz. Uh, Most of you, my listeners, know about Dr. Wentz. Um, I'm a big fan of her book and uh, her writings and her teachings. And for those of you who don't know uh, Dr. Wentz, she is a pharmacist. She's an internationally acclaimed thyroid specialist and licensed pharmacist who has dedicated her career to addressing the root causes of autoimmune thyroid disease after being diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis in 2009. Uh, Dr. Wentz is the author of the New York Times bestselling patient guide entitled Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause, and that's available pretty much everywhere, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And she's also the author of the recently released protocol-based book, Hashimoto's Protocol, a 90-day plan for reversing thyroid symptoms and getting your life back. As a patient advocate, researcher, clinician, and educator, Dr. Wentz is committed to raising awareness on how to overcome autoimmune thyroid disease through the Thyroid Secret documentary series, the Hashimoto's Institute Practitioner Training, and her international consulting and speaking services offered to both patients and healthcare professionals. Her website is thyroidpharmacist.com. And uh, without further ado, welcome, Dr. Wentz. Good to have you on. Dr. Hedberg, thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a huge fan of your work. Thanks. Thanks. The feeling's mutual. So we're going to talk a lot today about some practical strategies uh, so that everyone listening can take this information and immediately implement some of these things so they can start feeling better. Uh, But before we do that, uh, let's just lay a little bit of some bedrock for some of the most common root causes of Hashimoto's uh, that you find everyone should know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dr. Hedberg, like yourself, I've been researching Hashimoto's for quite some time now. And if I were to divide up the root causes, I would put them in five main categories. Um, and those would be um, chronic stress or an inability to handle stress effectively, toxins or an inability to get rid of toxins properly, um, food sensitivities, leaky gut, um, chronic infections as well as potentially nutrient deficiencies. So um, I guess that's six different categories, huh? But um, overall, those are the different categories where um, when these things are out of balance, a person may be um, diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Um, What's interesting is that for one person, they just might have one of these imbalances present. So for, you know, we hear oftentimes a person will have a food sensitivity like that to gluten, and then they take away that food And then they're able to get into remission from Hashimoto's, where um, for another person, it might be a combination of all of the different 
triggers. So, um, you know, the word root cause, I think is an excellent word, but it's also, um, for a lot of people, it may be root causes that are more relevant. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So as we transition into talking about some practical strategies, you've worked with well over a thousand people and you figured out ways to accelerate the healing process and people can start feeling better sometimes within one to two weeks, even in people who have been suffering for many, many years. So why don't you lay some uh, foundational strategies there that you've used to get such great success? So um, when I first got myself well, it certainly took way more than two weeks, right? Um, And the, you know, when you look at the root cause approach and you look at what all of the potential triggers can be for thyroid disease, um, you know, a person or a clinician can spend a lot of time trying to do a lot of lab testing and trying to dig and figure out what exactly is setting off the immune cascade. Um, and this can look like doing food sensitivity t- testing. This can be doing gut testing. Um, some of those stool tests may come take a few weeks to get back. Um, doing various blood tests and so on and so forth. Um, and in between patient appointments, we may have, um, you know, a person may not be able to come back or they may not implement the changes right away. And, and sometimes we can really lose precious time with that. And I wanted to find out if there were things that were somewhat universal to the healing process, some things that people can do just perhaps on their own as they're, or while they're working with a practitioner some of these fundamental things that can help them get better right away. Um, and another thing that led to this is I was finding that a lot of my clients, um, you know, when we would get them started on various protocols, um, some of them would do great with them and others would have further, you know, reactions to the supplements or they'd feel worse or they wouldn't start feeling better. And one of the things that can be related to that could be if a person um, who's sensitive to a lot of different um, supplements and sensitive to a lot of chemicals in the environment and just overall really, really sensitive. One of the root causes for that can be um, liver congestion or an impaired ability to handle toxins. And so one of the things that I started doing with my clients um, was going through and just supporting their liver for one to two weeks. And by doing that, we were able to see people have been able to start feeling better right away. Um, I didn't know this was going to happen at first. And I was pretty surprised when I started getting messages, um, you know, from clients within a week or two Mm. and start saying, Oh my goodness, you know, I had multiple chemical sensitivities for quite a few years now. And I I was doing this, um, liver support protocol that you would recommend for two weeks. And now I'm able to walk past a Yankee candle store. Um, and I, I can go shopping with my kids for the first time. And that was really, really exciting for me. And I thought, okay, well, this is something that I want to put out there in a bigger way. And it's, um, pretty, pretty simple protocol based on functional medicine, where you look at cutting out things out of your body that are to- or out of your life that are toxic. So getting a floor reverse osmosis filter to get fluoride out of your water, getting off of gluten, dairy, and soy which are very common reactive foods in people with Hashimoto's. Um, you know, back, I think when I first started, I was getting food sensitivity tests and I know other clients um, of mine would want to see the food sensitivity tests before they would actually get off of the food. But, um, so many people up to 88% of people are going to be reactive to gluten 
and 80% of them are going to be reactive to dairy, that it just makes sense to just start off the bat and get off of those foods so that we can start having a person feeling better right away. Um, then we incorporate things like green smoothies, um, plenty of, of um, detoxifying vegetables like broccoli, um, and you do want to you can steam those and you can even eat them raw in moderation. And then supporting the liver with things like milk, thistle, and other kinds of um, liver support nutrients um, and supplements. And that can really produce a big change for people in as little as one to two weeks where they start removing things from their day-to-day um, -day life, um, which could be like fluoride. I also have them go on a, a detox of their personal care products. Um, I have them stop using their cleaning products and just really thinking about all of the things that are in their environment that could be potentially um, toxic because we know that one of the root causes of Hashimoto's and autoimmune disease is when we have a burden, uh, a system that's overwhelmed with toxins. And that could be because of everything we're exposed to or because we're not getting rid of it properly. Um, so that's been something that I've been really excited to share with a lot of people um, I did that initially with my clients, and then I was able to pilot that with a, within a group program, and 65% of people said that they felt better, significantly better after just doing the two-week liver support protocol. Mm, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I'd like to just add a few things to buttress uh, what you were saying, and I know that you, you're also a fan of N-acetylcysteine and certain patients, which is of course going to be helpful uh, for the liver. And then I like the, I think you probably use this as well, the Environmental Working Group's Cosmetic Database. Uh, that's excellent. They have some great resources for uh, pesticides and metals and different foods like fish. And then all of the um, household products that you were talking about and of course cosmetics. That's a great, uh, great way to start. So Let's shift into diet. Um, any particular diet recommendations that you have for people with Hashimoto's? Yeah, definitely. And I kind of like to think of a step up or a step down approach with diet. Um, not everybody needs the most extreme diet. And some people may benefit just from doing like a gluten-free, dairy-free, and soy-free diet, which is a starting point for most people. Um, sometimes I've had people get off of those three foods and within um, two to three months, we'll, we'll start seeing that their thyroid antibodies go into the remission range and a lot of their symptoms go away. Um, so that's certainly one way to start. Um, then we go into the additional diets. If, if, that perhaps, if a person perhaps hit a plateau or if they started off with multiple autoimmune conditions and severe symptoms, we would consider starting off with either the paleo diet, which also excludes grains and a lot of processed foods. Or we would even consider doing something like the autoimmune paleo diet, which is going to be um, much more restrictive where we exclude grains, seeds, nightshades, eggs, um, as well as nuts and seeds. And we do that for about um, anywhere from four to eight weeks. And then we start reintroducing foods. Um, it's It's been really amazing and quite almost like surprising to me to see what kind of symptoms go away when you take away the foods that are causing inflammation within your body. Um, so I've seen, you know, like eczema, irritable bowel syndrome. I've seen, you know, symptoms like symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, 
um, thyroid antibodies, thyroid nodules, all of these various amazing things that, you know, just as a pharmacologist, I was like, wow, if, if this elimination diet was a drug, then this would be like a best-selling drug because it can be effective for so many different things. Um, so generally the, that's what I encourage people to do. And, um, I do recommend doing food sensitivity testing every now and then that can be helpful for sure. But I also don't want people to be limited by, I don't have enough money to get food sensitivity testing, or, um, my doctor won't order these tests, or perhaps even I got the tests and they didn't show that I was sensitive to anything where, you know, really our bodies are going to know best what we're sensitive to. And like I already mentioned with Hashimoto's, I did a survey of over, um, 2000 people a few years ago and 88% of them said they felt better gluten-free and 80% felt better dairy-free. And so chances are, if you're like most Hashimoto's patients, you're going to feel better off of these foods as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, one of the things that can be confusing for patients is when we do a food sensitivity panel and gluten does not come back reactive, um, you know, you kind of have to explain to the patient that this is, this is an IgG response. Uh, it could be completely different in its, um, effects on the Hashimoto's. And how would you explain that to those patients who test negative, but, but you know that it's going to help them? You know, it, it's kind of been one of my frustrating points. And I remember I was working in public health and I first started having, success through nutrition and functional medicine. And one of my coworkers was having acid reflux. And I told him about how, um, when I had food sensitivity testing that revealed that I was dairy and gluten sensitive and that got rid of, um, getting rid of those foods, got rid of my acid reflux and all these other things that I was struggling with. And he was really excited about this. And he ran out to his doctor and got a referral to an allergist and then got what I call the itchy back test, where he <laughs> tested for all these different foods. And um, the food reactions were part of the IgE branch of the immune system. Um, and these are known as true allergies or real allergies by conventional medicine. And I really, really don't like that term because it, it kind of implies that other you know, sensitivities don't exist, which is the furthest thing from the truth, because there are various branches of the immune system. So there's IgG, IgM, and IgA that are potentially reactive to foods in addition to the IgE. And those are just the ones that we know about, right? Um, and so even if you're doing, you know, obviously the IgE test, I don't recommend for food sensitivities. I recommend the IgE test for allergies like, um, you know, like the hives or the swelling or the, the kind that you would have um, where you would need an EpiPen. But generally, most people kind of know what those are. So IgG testing seems to be the best bet. Um, there's um, some variants of Hashimoto's that are potentially IgG related. And we know whenever we eat a food that causes an IgG reaction, that can perhaps have an adverse um, reaction on increasing thyroid antibodies as well. Um, so that's one potential mechanism. And there are other, um, there are other kinds of mechanisms and research out there that you know, perhaps you may not be sensitive to gluten per se, but there may be another protein that's found within wheat that you are sensitive to. Um, and there was a recent study about that that showed there was a different type of protein 
that people with autoimmune disease were reacting to. And this could be, you know, something like molecular mimicry, where perhaps the protein looks similar enough to our thyroid gland. So every time we're exposed to that protein, we're, um, our immune system is reacting to it and then also reacts to the thyroid. There's just so many different mechanisms. And I don't know that we necessarily even have the means to measure them all, but we really can measure what happens when we get off of a food. So I really encourage people to give it a try for three weeks, get off of gluten, get off of dairy, get off of soy. If you don't feel any different, then, you know, get back on the foods. But really just giving it a try can be a hugely rewarding um, change that you can make. Um, For me personally, getting off of those foods helped me get rid of my acid reflux that I had for three years, um, got rid of my irritable bowel syndrome that I had for close to a decade my carpal tunnel went away and it was, it was my thyroid antibodies dropped and, and all of these other things got better. So I just encourage you to really give it a try. Even if you don't have the tests that, um, that prove that you're sensitive, you know, your, your body really knows best. That's exactly right. I mean, I would say it's very rare that, you know, I run a food sensitivity test and, uh, gluten and gluten containing grains and dairy, you know, those are going to come back probably 98, 99 out of a hundred times. Um, and then eggs tend to be a big one. Soy, like you mentioned, tree nuts and, and grains and things like that. But yeah, like you said, a lot of times just giving up a few of those foods can really have a dramatic impact very quickly. Sometimes within, you know, two or three days, patients will see a big difference. So let's, um, shift a little bit into stress physiology and let's give people some things that they can do on a regular basis that really help, um, balance their stress physiology. Yeah. And so, um, one of the things that I think is very much underappreciated is how much chronic stress contributes to autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, and people could be eating the perfect diet and doing everything right, you know, taking supplements and everything else. But if the stress piece is not dialed in, um, they're going to continue to struggle. So we know that um, there are bacteria in our gut that are stress-related. So they might become more pathogenic when we're stressed out, and that may be contributing to intestinal permeability. We know that our um, thyroid hormones are not going to work properly whenever we're stressed out, and we know that our gut's not going to work properly. So we may be Um, putting ourselves at risk, even in a person who is in remission from Hashimoto's, let's say they're stressing out a lot. Um, they may, they may, um, weaken their gut barrier and gut response to the point where they can pick up another gut infection. And so I really encourage people to take on stress reducing activities. And, you know, the question is what's the best kind of stress reducing activity. And I I think it's the best one is the one that you're going to (laughs) do. Um, and so whether that's yoga or meditation or, you know, adult coloring books, they, they even have ones with like swear words for people that, you know, whatever you enjoy, (laughs) it's going to be a really great method. Um, one of my favorite things to recommend to people is doing like a spa month where they essentially have permission for one month to only do the things that they like, to sleep in as much as they can, um, to eat as much as they want to, as long as the foods are, you know, healthy and anti-inflammatory. 
and, you know, just really focus on themselves, like let go of their responsibilities. So cancel their gym appointments, cancel their, um, you know, visits with the in-laws or whatever stresses them out. Um, and try to do that for a month where you go to bed at 9 PM and you let yourself sleep as much as you can. Um, I encourage people to get off of caffeine and anything really that can be putting your body in, in kind of a flight or fight or flight mode. So anything that stresses you out, um, mm -hmm. just trying to let go of that for, for a month and give yourself that opportunity to heal. So, um, think if you were going to go to a fancy spa somewhere and try to recreate that in your own home. Yeah, that's really excellent advice. I mean, the, the main things that I'm recommending are, you know, a lot of the things you mentioned, but meditation is a big one. Um, and I'm also a big fan of journaling. Um, that can be extremely helpful for depression, anxiety, you know, dealing with stress. It doesn't take very long, 10 to 15 minutes a day. And then uh, just getting out in nature, some nature walks, getting off of social media. And then I also like Epsom salt baths. This tends to work really well in the evening. It kind of ties in with the spa day thing you were talking about where, you know, tell them to light some candles, play some music, put a cup of Epsom salts in the bathtub, maybe some essential oils and things like that. It's going to have some really dramatic effects on their autonomic nervous system and, and get their stress down. So that's all excellent advice. I love, yeah, I love all of those suggestions. So those are, um, things you can work into your daily life and they don't take a lot of time, but they're so beneficial for you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a lot of times, uh, people get caught up in a web of, you know, extremely strict diets for a really long time and, uh, just too many supplements, massive amounts of supplements and, a lot of these things that you just mentioned are going to have just as significant, if not more uh, significant of an impact than any of those things. So uh, extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the, the gut thyroid connection and any strategies that, that people can use to improve that connection? You know, it's such a huge connection and there's, um, surprisingly, there's not a ton of research out there, but we know with autoimmune disease that every case of autoimmune disease has a, um, component of leaky gut or intestinal permeability and, and thyroid disease is no different. So, um, for me personally, I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome a few years before I, um, was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. And this seems to, to be the pattern for many people whenever um, I've done intakes with my clients or um, surveys or, you know, even going through functional medicine training, that's often the case is one of the first systems that breaks down is, is the gut wall and the gut barrier. Um, and after that, we start seeing autoimmune disease develop. Part of it is with, with autoimmune um, disease, we know that it, there's an immune component. And so perhaps when we have that intestinal permeability, we don't have a proper development of the immune system. So that could be one part of it. Another part of it could be um, perhaps an infection in the gut um, that may be looking like the thyroid gland, and, and that could be another potential trigger. Um, and we often will see an impaired conversion of T4 to T3 whenever a person has leaky gut as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of different connections between that. And, and of course, we know that thyroid hormones also impact the gut. And so whenever we have a person with an underactive thyroid, the gut motility is going to be slowed down. They're going to have lower amounts of stomach acid. And um, of course, we're always wondering like what came first? Was it the thyroid disorder or was it the gut disorder? And functional medicine seems to suggest that it was definitely the gut disorder that came first, but at the same time, the thyroid can be perpetuating it. And so it's kind of a matter of like, how do you break that vicious cycle? Um, We know that people with hypothyroid, about 50% of them at least, maybe even more, are going to have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that could be due to delayed gastric emptying, or it could be due to, um, you know, or that could be the initial root cause because small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be um, a trigger for leaky gut. And so we really want to dial in on gut health for people with thyroid disease. And there are a variety of different imbalances that can contribute to, to gut disturbances. Um, And, you know, the biggest ones are going to be things like uh, food sensitivity. So we talked about gluten, dairy, and soy. Those are going to be some of the biggest foods that are going to be maybe in some cases causing leaky gut in other cases, perpetuating leaky gut where they're not at the root cause, but they're sort of contributing, right? Um, Then we're going to have nutrient deficiencies like L-glutamine and zinc. We're going to have digestive enzyme deficiencies, um, betaine with Pepsin is an excellent digestive enzyme that helps people digest their protein-containing foods. Um, And then we're also looking at um, potentially various types of infections. And and so from a a practical standpoint, what a person can do on their own is they can get off of the foods that are potentially stressful to them. Um, They can start working with getting some probiotics on board. Sarcomyces boulardii is an excellent probiotic that helps to clear out the pathogenic gut flora and helps to reestablish another good floor, uh, helps to reestablish a good gut flora in there. Um, doing things like bone broth and fermented foods can help reestablish the gut flora. And I generally recommend doing something like that for um, maybe two to six weeks for people on their own. And definitely if their gut hasn't healed with these interventions, they really need to work with a functional medicine um, practitioner to try to figure out what's causing their gut to be leaky. Cause In many cases, it could be a gut infection, and we know that, um, yes, nutrition can help heal from an infection and in some cases can overcome an infection, but in many cases, we may need additional interventions like like various uh, protocols for clearing out pathogens. Mm, Exactly. And that's something that we do on pretty much every, you know, autoimmune Hashimoto's patient is stool analysis to try and identify those things. And just wanted to add uh, some additional practical applications for digestion. One of the things I always instruct patients to do is to eat in a healthy environment, meaning don't uh, text, don't (laughs) check social media, don't watch TV, don't read the news. Eating should be just focusing on your meal and chewing your food completely until it's liquefied. And that's just a very simple, you know, practical thing that's going to sometimes have some significant impacts. Because as you know, a lot of our patients are just uh, sympathetic, dominant, you know, they're fight or flight all the time. And, and they just need to shift into that parasympathetic rest and digest. So they have to eliminate 
all those external negative factors. Mm-hmm. You know, that's such an important thing that you brought up. And um, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize is if let's say, you know, and I've had some clients that have gone through this, if they were angry or upset when they were eating, they were more likely to have reactions to their foods. So whether there was a pathogen in there, um, when they became angry or emotional, that um, pathogen was more likely to cause them an adverse reaction or even the food um, protein was more likely to cause them an adverse reaction. Um, And even doing things like taking some time to do a couple of minutes of deep breathing and being grateful for your food can go a really long way and put you in that, um, you know, rest and digest mode, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Being grateful. And that's, that's just kind of ties in with what I mentioned earlier about journaling. That's one of the recommendations I have is to tell people to write down three things that they're grateful for every day. And, uh, and then when they're eating, like you said, you know, being grateful for the food. I mean, I think I read that, I think it was just last year, you know, I think 20 million children uh, died of starvation in the world. And so, you know, and that's on a yearly basis. So we need to be really grateful for for all the food that we have. Um, wow. The, uh, so as functional medicine practitioners, you know, you and I, we will see, you know, a hundred patients with Hashimoto's disease and we'll have a hundred different treatment plans because everyone's treated as an individual. Um, but there are some supplements that are going to benefit most people with Hashimoto's. So can you talk about some of those? Sure, of course. And one of the ones you already mentioned is N-acetylcysteine. And that's generally going to be a supplement that can be helpful for a lot of people with Hashimoto's unless they're, you know, sulfur sensitive. Um, and that is something that can be used to support our glutathione, internal glutathione production. It can be helpful for supporting the liver. It can break up some of the biofilms where all of the pathogens live. Um, and that can be really helpful for people. Um, magnesium, doing like a magnesium supplement at bedtime. Um, I like the magnesium citrate for people who are constipated and glycinate for people who um, don't have those issues. Um, and that can be really helpful for people for helping them with um, with relaxing their muscles, reducing some of the joint pains. Works really, really well for, um, for women who have menstrual cramps and menstrual pains. That can be something that's very helpful. Um, doing a supplement like selenium. So selenium has been found to reduce thyroid antibodies when taken over the course of about three months. And um, selenium methionine at 200 micrograms is the supplement that I really like for that. Um, And also uh, some of the B vitamins can be super, super helpful. The um, benfotiamine or thiamine at 600 milligrams every day has been shown to reduce thyroid fatigue in as little as three days. Um, These are, you know, things that most people can can benefit from without um, necessarily having um, any specific assessments. Uh, of course, there are other types of supplements that you would want to get some testing. For example, um, we know that vitamin D deficiency can contribute to autoimmune disease. And so I always encourage people to get test their vitamin D levels tested and perhaps doing a vitamin D supplement for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all excellent and 
those are all going to help, you know, most people with Hashimoto's. The other one that I would add is um, zinc, but that's, of course, only if they're deficient. Um, zinc, you know, as you know, extremely vital for all aspects of thyroid physiology and the immune system um, as well. So we've talked about a lot of strategies. Uh, anything else you can think of that you want people to know, uh, some take home messages? You know, one of the things that I'd like to kind of, um, talk to people about is thinking about thyroid disease and, and what kind of role it plays in your life. And it's, it sounds a little bit woo -woo out there, but when, um, we think about people who have thyroid disease, autoimmune thyroid disease. I know it can feel like a bit of a betrayal. I did, it did for me when I first found out that I had an autoimmune, um, reaction against a part of my own body. It felt like a part of my body was betraying me. And, you know, that's a really heavy load to carry to think about how you are attacking yourself. And so I want to kind of reframe things for people and talk about the, um, the thyroid autoimmunity from a adaptive physiology standpoint. So your body is trying to do everything it can in its power to protect you. We know that uh, people who were hypothyroid were more likely to survive various traumatic events. Um, for example, the survivors of the Irish potato famine, they were more likely to be hypothyroid and have Hashimoto's, um, and thus they were able to survive with fewer calories, right? Because mm -hmm. during a famine, we don't have much of that. Um, we know that prisoners of war who were captured, um, the ones that tended to survive and have better outcomes also were hypothyroid because the, the hypothyroidism sort of put them in a, in a protective state. Um, and, and we also know that, you know, different survivors of things like physical abuse or sexual trauma, they may be more likely to become hypothyroid later on in life. And, um, perhaps this also serves as a protective mechanism looking at, Okay, if you were um, if you were a cave woman, and if you were being um, if your village was being attacked, and you were um, I don't know if they had villages back then, but <laughs> if your cave was being attacked and um, you were you were hypothyroid, that would probably be protective for you because you'd be less likely to be out roaming around. You'd be more likely to survive in your cave. You'd be you know more tired and sleeping there, and you wouldn't be as much of a target for. Um, potential people who may hurt you. And so I really want people to think about that from that perspective that um, when you have autoimmune thyroid disease, it is a way of your body trying to protect you from whatever um, stressors you have in your life right now. And, and some of the stressors can be real, like infections and toxins. And some of the stressors can be, um, you know, kind of subjective, like getting stressed out about all the things we need to do and, and being a perfectionist and having OCD and all these other things that we, um, we kind of put on ourselves. And I really encourage you to, to think about, um, that from that perspective and work towards putting your body in a place where it feels it's safe. So whether that's getting rid of the infections that you have, feeding your body really great nourishing foods. So it doesn't think you're in a famine and then that's why you're eating all these processed foods. Um, you know, giving yourself an, a break, being easy on yourself and being kind to yourself, um, getting rid of some of the toxins in your environment. This is really how I like to approach 
um, autoimmune thyroid disease from that perspective, it, like working with your body, not fighting against your body. That's all uh, really, really good information. And that's going to help a lot of people reframe, you know, their illness. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Um, and, you know, one other example is diabetes. You know, diabetes is the body's attempt at a cure. And so that kind of uh, ties in with what you were saying about whenever you have an illness, you know, whether it's diabetes or Hashimoto's, your body is trying to adapt, it's trying to survive, and it's doing the best it can. So that's just a great message. Um, why don't we close with uh, sort of a controversial question or questions? A lot of people are just wondering, is it possible to get Hashimoto's into complete remission? And can thyroid tissue actually regenerate? after it's been damaged by the immune system? Ooh, that's such a great question. So let's start off with uh, remission first. And um, generally, if you were to talk to a conventional medical doctor, they would say once you have Hashimoto's, you're always going to have Hashimoto's. Um, and in a sense, uh, that's potentially true because there are five stages to Hashimoto's. The first one is just having the genetic predisposition to develop the condition. Um, but for all intents and purposes, when you're in that first stage, you don't have any thyroid symptoms. You don't have an attack on your thyroid gland. And all of your thyroid labs are normal and your thyroid function is normal. Um, the second stage we start moving into the immune system begins to attack the thyroid gland. But, you know, all of your labs will still be normal. You still may have symptoms. The third stage is when we start having um, a loss of compensation of the thyroid gland. And the thyroid gland, you know, starts to sustain enough damage where we start seeing changes in lab markers and even more symptoms. In the fourth stage, we start looking at overt hypothyroidism where the thyroid gland has completely lost its ability to compensate because it's become damaged. Um, and then that's when most people get diagnosed with hypothyroidism and they get placed on thyroid hormone replacement. The fifth stage is um, progression to other types of autoimmune conditions. So this might be lupus, this might be rheumatoid arthritis. And a lot of times people will say, okay, well, um, you know, if you have Graves disease, you should get your thyroid removed because that's the cure. And to me, that's really scary because you have, um, you know, you didn't get rid of the imbalance. The imbalance is with the immune system. It's not with the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland is just what's being attacked at the moment. And we'll see people who have their thyroids um, removed because of Hashimoto's, Graves disease, um, whatnot. And they'll, they'll go on to develop other types of autoimmune conditions later on in life. And so that's, you know, when if you were to do nothing, if you weren't going to do any functional medicine or any lifestyle changes, What's really exciting with the functional and lifestyle changes is that you can move back in those stages. And so you can get the condition into remission. So what does that mean? Um, and, and every condition has its unique definition of remission. Um, for Hashimoto's, there's not really a clear definition. So what I consider it is, is I consider it a journey. So let's say your thyroid antibodies were in the 5,000 range and now they're in the 2,000 range and you don't have any more symptoms you know, that is moving towards remission. Um, generally, though, we know that the higher the antibody numbers, the greater the chance of progression and the more aggressive the attack on the thyroid gland. So I like to see antibodies under 100 um, and under 35 if possible for people. And that's what, what may be considered, um, you know, in, in my book, that's what I would consider a remission if they're under 100, mm -hmm. ideally under 35. 
Um, as far as regenerating tissue, so, you know, of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So it's much, much easier to prevent damage to the thyroid gland than it is to regenerate tissue. But tissue regeneration is, is possible. And so I'm not saying that dead cells will come back to life, but, you know, the, the body keeps repairing itself. The body can do that. Now, um, the challenge is that it kind of does it in its, in its own way, on its own time schedule. Um, and so a person, a person who's had thyroid disease for 20 years, if, even if they get into remission, they get rid of all those, those triggers, there's not a guarantee that they're going to get rid get, be able to regenerate thyroid tissue or get off of thyroid medications, um, with that. But there are some exciting, although I have seen it. So I've seen people who had been on thyroid medications for, um, as many as 17 years, who were able to wean off of their medications once they address their triggers. Um, but the, and definitely putting your body in that rest and digest and heal state is going to be helpful. But the other thing that can be really helpful for tissue regeneration is, um, cold laser therapy or low level laser therapy. There were some studies done in a Brazilian clinic where they were able to see a reduction in thyroid medications for every patient that was studied. This was like a randomized controlled placebo, randomized placebo controlled trial. And then half of the patients were able to get off of their thyroid medications completely. Now, this is something that um, the researchers followed these patients for nine months, and the patients did not need to go back on their thyroid medications during that time. Um, and so this is a really, really exciting and innovative method. Um, of course, not, a, not many endocrinologists are going to know about low-level laser therapy, and you need to have specific settings, and you need to work with a practitioner that's trained in that. But there are ways for people to, um, you know, recover their thyroid function if that's their goal. That's excellent. Um, that's going to give a lot of hope to a lot of people and hopefully clear up the confusion about Hashimoto's and uh, medication. You know, that's one thing that a lot of people are confused about is how long uh, how long they've been on medication and will they be able to you know, get off of it and for the thyroid to regenerate. So, and that laser information is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking forward to looking more into that. And, and, you know, one thing I just want to add, there's absolutely no shame in being on thyroid hormone replacement. So, um, you know, it's something that is crucial and necessary for us to survive. So if, if a person does need to be on thyroid hormone replacement, um, they should know that it's not going to be something that is going to be causing them adverse reactions necessarily they just want to make sure that they're on the right dosage for them and the right kind of formulation. And so this isn't, you know, from a pharmacologist standpoint, there are drugs that I consider dirty drugs that like stimulate receptors and block receptors and do all this, um, you know, crazy voodoo within our own bodies and cause a lot of side effects. But with thyroid hormone medications, especially like the natural desiccated thyroids and the glandulars, these are um, the same hormones that we make in our body naturally. So there's absolutely no shame in being on those medications or supplements if you need to be on them. That's exactly right. Good point. Um, all right. So where would you like people to find you? Uh, how would you like people to connect with you online? Oh, wonderful. So, um, if, if people want to come visit me, my website is thyroidpharmacist.com. And if they go to thyroidpharmacist.com slash protocol, 
I'm going to have some, um, um, some goodies for them, including a free book chapter, as well as some recipes to get them started on their path to healing. That's excellent. And I highly recommend all the listeners to read Dr. Wentz's books and her uh, protocol guide. Um, excellent uh, information. Your first book, The Root Cause, is, is really just the best thyroid book out there. I mean, it's the best one ever written, and it's definitely the most comprehensive, and I think people will really enjoy it. So I urge you to get that and read it. Um, well, thanks for coming on, Dr. Wentz. I appreciate it, and I know everyone appreciates all the, the hard work you do to get the word out. And um, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Hedberg. And I really appreciate your kind words and the work that you're doing in the world. You're helping so many patients. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do on behalf of the whole thyroid community. Thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, this is Dr. Hedberg. And I will see you at the next podcast. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.